Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. We as the eMERGE community must lead the change. The greater ignorance, the greater the dogmatism. For penetrating trauma, placing patients in spinal precautions is useless and actually it confers more injury than good. We need to use our brains. We don't need to have this dogmatic, ritualized backboard and collar for all. This year, the North York General Hospital's Emergency Medicine Update Conference was one of the best ever. We had the pleasure of having Scott Weingart, Amamatu, Stuart Swadron, Michael Betzner, Walter Himmel. The list goes on. It, it was really quite amazing. One of the talks that stood out for me was entitled Backboard and Collar Nightmares by Dr. Kylie Bosman. She's an emergency physician as well as the chief of the emergency department at Collingwood General Hospital. Now, Collingwood is a small city that sees four season trauma. Skiers, snowmobilers and skaters in the winter, mountain bikers in the shoulder seasons and alcohol related trauma in the summer. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Kylie Bosman to EM Cases. So I'm going to talk about backboard and collar nightmares. And I think the overarching nightmare here is your own nightmare. When you look at the back hall of your uh, EMS uh, bay and you see the lineup. And you know that each and every one of those patients needs at least three people to get them off. They're yelling, they're screaming, i got pain everywhere. And so my hope today in this next sort of short 15 minutes is to challenge the dogma and the ritualistic application of these backboard and collars to seemingly everyone. The big T traumas and the little T traumas. I'm going to start off with a quote from William Mosler, which is, the greater ignorance, the greater the dogmatism. And I think this truly applies to our pre-hospital and hospital care of the query spinal injured patient. The theory is great, which is do no harm. And I think that we need to recognize that before we go into this, is that our intention of our pre-hospitalists, our triage, our, our ERMDs, is to do no harm. We're all desperately worried about not providing the spinal mobilization that potentially could go on to create the secondary neurologic injury. None of us wants to be the outlier who's not providing the sort of gold standard of care. And whether that is because you, you know, you're you know, truly worried about your patient. But the other issue is the medical legal. No one wants to be the sort of person that's providing the substandard or non-gold standard care in that patient who goes on to a bad outcome. What I need to do in the next couple of minutes is actually show you the evidence. And my hope is that we as a community can uh, get behind this and move forward in a more rational way. The facts are that about 1.3 million patients per year in North America are evaluated for spinal injuries. 1.3 million. And of those, less than 1% sort of have a spinal injury, a bony spinal injury, and less than that, 0.5% have spinal cord injury. So it's a fairly rare entity. Our evidence in terms of our BLS standards is all based on basically 1960s level 3 opinion evidence that says if you move an injured spine you will cause damage, you will cause that patient who was not previously going to be paraplegic or quadriplegic to go on to complete their injury. That's incredible. All these years, I've been boarding and collaring patients based on level three opinion from 50 years ago. My question is, what has the literature shown since then? Let's first hear what Dr. Bosman has to say about whether backboarding and collaring patients makes sense, and then we'll get on to the nitty gritty literature. 
And there was a Cochrane review in 2007 that said, well, there's actually no evidence for that. There's never been an RCT on this. And you say, okay, well, I understand why there's not been an RCT. And the reason is, is anyone who's tried to get funding for a grant proposal has gone through their ethics board. And to sit at the ethics board and to say to them, well, we might not immobilize these patients. Just trust us. It's okay. You can imagine that medical advisory committees and ministries of health, et cetera, balk at this concept. However, while there's not been an RCT to support spinal mobilization, there's starting to evolve uh, an increasing sort of dearth of, of literature that shows biomechanically this may not make sense. And that's not hard, and for the physicists and the uh, folks who are smarter than I in the crowd, I apologize. But a backboard is a rigid surface. What we do is we strap our patients to rigid surfaces and we provide fulcrums. We provide fulcrums in terms of tape, we provide fulcrums in terms of straps, and we actually basically tamp them down to a very firm surface that has no absorptive capabilities to it. And that actually increases movement at certain segments. So while we decrease movement at one, we actually increase movement at another. And this can be problematic. Imagine for a moment an elderly osteoporotic person with a kyphotic spine who gets strapped down to a spinal board after a fall and neck injury. What's happening to their C-spine when their head's extended back against the board? Essentially, their curved spine gets forced into a straight position, and that's bad. Spinal shock and even death can result from simply strapping a patient to a spinal board with a neck injury who's kyphotic or who has ankylosing spondylitis, as another example. One of the best studies I wanted to point out to you was a study that was actually done in 1998 that I didn't actually become aware of until a few years ago. And it looked at two sites, and you say, okay, what do these two sites have to do with each other? One is Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and another is a North American site. And while you say, okay, those places don't really have much in common, um, in fact, they do. When you look head-to-head at their hospital environment, they had well-trained emergentologists, they had CT radiographs, uh, they had well-trained neuroradiologists to read said CTs. But what Kuala Lumpur lacked was a pre-hospital care system. And so if you were in a blunt trauma, you either went through your windshield or you fell out of a third-story building, you were brought in by the family motorcycle or the family car. Whereas in North America, you can imagine you were brought in with full uh, C collar and board. And the interesting thing is, is when they looked at of the subset of patients who actually had spinal injury, There was 454 of them. And in fact, this was actually a non-inferiority test. The patients in Kuala Lumpur who came in by family motorcycle, who came in by, you know, piggyback, actually did better than did their colleagues who were backboard collared and brought in with spinal precautions. And so it makes you scratch your head. We could argue these sort of uh, controversies in this study, but it still makes you scratch your head. And it made other people smarter than I scratch their head too. In New Mexico, they started to use what's called a selective immobilization strategy, which basically took equivalent to the nexus rules and gave it to pre-hospital care and said, apply it in the field, and you may not need to immobilize all these people. Now, we all know that nexus is a little less sensitive than is the Canadian C-spine rule. In fact, it was a little less sensitive than even the nexus, because you can see out of the 415 patients, they missed immobilizing 35 of them. Gasp, right? Why aren't these 33 of these patients who were not immobilized who had bona fide spinal injuries, why didn't they go on to have horrendous outcomes? I don't know, but zero out of 33 of them sustained a spinal cord injury. Again, we should pause and think about what's going on here. There was a study released about two years ago um, that actually took a Toyota Corolla and they mashed it up and they encroached the driver's uh, side and they put some healthy volunteers with a bunch of sensors on their heads, their necks, their torsos, and they said, okay, we're going to get you out of the car. But you have four options. 
You're either just gonna get out by yourself, we're not even gonna put a collar on and we're just gonna watch you, or we're gonna give you a collar and then you can get out on your own, or we're gonna let you sit there, we're all gonna gather around you as EMS practitioners and firefighters, et cetera, and we're gonna help you out uh, with your collar, or we're gonna put your collar on and we're not gonna let you get out, we're gonna put you in a Kendrick device, which is my, I don't like them, but is my pet peeve. Anyway, and they saw who had the least amount of movement, and it turns out for the awake and alert blunt trauma patient with a suspected neurologic injury, the best way to get out of your car is actually to put a collar on and actually get out on your own without assistance whatsoever. In a follow-up to this study, um, there was actually a study in, uh, by Dixon in the Emergency Medicine Journal uh, last year that actually said that current extrication uh, techniques cause up to four times more cervical spine movement than controlled self-extrication. So it makes you think, what are we doing here? What I want to remind you all is that the backboard has never been shown to be a spinal immobilizer. It has always been and should always continue to be thought of as an extrication technique. If I am up on the top of a mountain, or I'm down in a crevasse, or I'm going to be flown out somewhere, dangling from a wire below a helicopter, I want to be on a backboard. Why? Because I don't want, you know, five people holding me at various spots on my leg, my arm, etc. I want them to hold a firm surface, almost like pallbearers, as they're getting me out of a spot. If my heart is stopping and I'm on my backboard, I want to stay on my backboard as well. Why? Because it's a firm surface for someone to push hard and push fast. So the backboard is an extrication device and a hard surface for CPR, but has never been proven to provide spinal protection. At this point, Dr. Bosman's going to explain why backboards and collars are not without risk. I'm just going to run through a quick list here. First, they are time-intensive to apply and increase time to definitive care. They've been shown to increase mortality by twofold in penetrating injuries, Within 30 minutes, they can cause pressure ulcers, which are the leading cause of morbidity and mortality in spinal injured patients. And finally, collars increase ICP and so may potentially worsen neurologic outcomes. We know that backboard and collars cause harm. Why do we know this? Not just because of our gut reaction when we see that loaded back hallway and we think, oh my goodness, what are we doing? And there's people, uh, you know, all this way and that way and we need at least three of us to get them off. We know that the application of those backboards and the getting off of those backboards causes significant delays in definitive care. We also know that they create difficult airways. You try to get your somebody's mouth open with an Aspen collar on, it's very difficult. And I'm pleased to hear not just myself but other speakers saying that this is a technique that we can abandon. There's a Journal of Trauma article in 2010 that actually showed a twofold mortality in uh, patients who were backboard and collared after penetrating trauma. And so for penetrating trauma, placing patients in spinal precautions is useless and actually it confers more injury than good. After our physical exams of a backboard and collar patient, we all know patients are tender tip to tail. So what does that mean? It means they get more x-rays. It means they're in our department for a longer period of time. It means our throughput and our P4R dollars are a bit more difficult to reach. People develop pressure ulcers within 30 minutes. And you say, ah, it's just a sore bum. That will get better. But in fact, if you actually do have a spinal cord injury and you are quadriplegic and paraplegic, what's the leading cause of morbidity and mortality? Your decubus ulcer. Those patients are at high risk for these issues. There's also been a nice study using a focused ultrasound uh, technique, which looks at the uh, internal jugular with patients who are uh, in a cervical collar, and they actually see about a 35% increase. 
As a surrogate marker for ICP, this is a big problem. If our pressures in our uh, jugs are up, so too is our pressure in our brain. And we all know that our suspected spinal injuries got there because they went through the windshield of a car, or they dove into a shallow pool, or they fell off a, a, you know, a tall mountain, whatever the issue is. These are multi-injured, traumatic brain injuries, plus or minus a neurologic injury. And you can imagine that as we try to care for one, we can worsen the other. And therefore, we have an even bigger, bigger, bigger role to play in making sure these are balanced and these are sound in terms of their evidence behind them. Backboard and collars. Delay the time to definitive care. They create difficult airways. Penetrating injuries cause two times the mortality. You're going to get sore everywhere. You're going to get pressure ulcers, and your ICP is going to go up. So what should we use? My argument here before you is that we need to use our brains. And why do we need to use our brains? Because it's not surprising to us why perhaps these things aren't working and they're not validated as we'd like them to be. This ski racer, let's give him about 80 kilos, maybe more going about 140, if he's winning the race, maybe 150, he rapidly decelerates. When his head hits what probably feels like pavement but is actually icy snow, the time zero energy that's deposed across his brain and across his uh, cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spine is enormous. In order to fracture a cervical spine fragment, you need about 5,000 newtons to actually fracture. It's a very stable structure. And so you can imagine that the forces exerted over a body or the micro-movements that we do as we're trying to get someone out of a car or the vibrations as they're in the back of their EMS bus or on their helicopter or the small, minute movements you use to sustain an airway are minute in comparison to that initial injury when they hit the ground at a speed. If you were just to lie down on a stretcher with your four-kilo head, some of you in the front row may have a little heavier heads, but... Uh, if gravity were to act at about 9.8 newtons, just the force of your unrestrained head lying back like so is about 40 newtons. 40 newtons versus 4,000 newtons to fracture a cervical spine, it's like comparing apples to oranges, and it's no wonder that it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense biomechanically, and you can understand now that it's not making sense in terms of our BLS standards. So as William Moser points out, one of the first duties of a physician is to educate the masses not to take medicine. And I would argue that if backboard and collar came through in 2015 and it was a medication and we tried to get it through FDA, not only would it be black boxed, uh, it probably wouldn't even make the cut. It wouldn't even appear in any pharmaco strategy. We as the eMERGE community must lead the change. And the reason is, is that backboard and collar does not equal spinal immobilization. We know that. We have biomechanical data to show that. And so what should we use? We need to care for this multi-system trauma patient quickly, efficiently. We can't delay working on his C-spine. And as we've heard from Ruben just 20 minutes ago, inline C-spine stabilization, and if you struggle, let the inline C-spine stabilization go. This airway is more important. This ICP is more important for this multi-trauma patient. The true number of actual spinal cord injuries caused by intubation approaches zero. And you say, okay, well, fiber optic, I move the neck a little less. Well, you can't get more zeros than zero. So you can use that if that makes you feel better. But if you're struggling with a query C-spine uh, airway, release the inline stabilization. It's going to be okay. The headache that we all get and perhaps the nightmare that we all get is the back end of your 
of your emergency bay that is just loaded with patients. I love the patient who gets in the simple MVC, is able to crawl out on their own, but rubs their neck at the roadside. Pretty soon they've got, you know, three huge, huge police officers, three firefighters, and two AMS people doing a standing takedown. And they get placed in their collar and their board and brought to you. And by the time they get to you, what hurts the most is their backboard and their collar, not whatever hurt in the first place. The Canadian C-spine rule has been validated for use by emergentologists, by trauma nurses, triage nurses, and actually by Valencourt et al. in 2011 for pre-hospital care. They're currently in the sort of uh, uh, rollout uh, in Ottawa right now of this, and my hope is that in the next few months they're going to get um, a multi-system trial funding. Valencourt tells us 40% of all low, very low-risk trauma patients could be transported safely without C-spine immobilization if paramedics were empowered to use the Canadian C-spine rule. If you run out of here and say, I want to enjoy this Saturday after a wonderful EMU conference, and you get hit as you're crossing Front Street and you've got an obvious tib-fib fracture, do you know what's going to happen to you? You have a distracting injury. You're going to be put on a backboard and collared and taken to the nearest eMERGE, where I guess there's no one working because everyone's here. So, <laughs> but I want to tell you that that also makes no sense. There's good data that in an awake and alert trauma patient, the distracting injury plays little into the uh, clinical examination of the, of the cervical spine. The presence of a distracting injury is part of the nexus rules, and some have argued that that's what makes the nexus rules problematic. Some experts believe that incorporating the idea of a distracting injury into any rule for assessing the C-spine is subjective, it's unreliable, and really isn't valid and even should be abandoned altogether. Let's get ready for Dr. Bosman to tell us about a great case. This is a case I had this winter time. It was a young lady, 29 years old, who was skiing down and hit a tree. And she was brought in backboarded and collared from the side of the hill. Um, and they actually took probably about two hours to get her off the hill. It was after hours, and she had climbed up with her friend, and it was a whole schmozzle of a story. The hill was closed by the time they got her. Um, and so she had spent a great deal of time just in transport to coming to me on a backboard and collar. We CT'd her from C-spine to L-spine, and she had an isolated T7 burst fracture, and she was neurologically completely intact. I was able to, through critical, get her a bed downtown, and when I spoke to the trauma-accepting uh, physician, they said, please replace her in collar and backboard for her transport, which for me was about two hours' time, at which point she started screaming and hollering that she's not ever going back on that, ever. And, you know, I agreed with her, so I did send her down just in her C-collar, on a soft, conforming mattress of an EMS stretcher. I got a little earful when they called me back, and so will you. And the reason is it's going to be an uphill battle to get these things to change. Before we can rationally practice this, we need to change BLS standards, which means the Ministry of Health needs to get on board, and the Medical Advisory Committee of the Ministry of Health needs to change BLS standards. Interfacility transfer protocols still include full backboard and collar uh, for transfer, which makes no sense. A hard, slippery board focuses energy underneath straps, underneath fulcrums, um, and that's not the way we should do it. When I was driving home after I got the earful from the accepting physician, I came up with this wonderful comeback, which was like, I should have sent them in the Cadillac, not the GMC, because clearly if we're worried about vibration uh, en route, uh, and I never did understand why the dead get the caddy and the still alive get the GMC, but anyhow, that was, I, I hate it when that happens, when you have the best comeback, but far too late to call back. 
Anyway, in closing, what we need to do as a community is discard this backboard for transport. It's fine if you're in a ditch, you get on a backboard, but as soon as they get to the EMS stretcher, they should have a careful slide over to the cot, or you can use scoop stretchers or vacuum mattresses, etc. C-collars are useless unless your C-spine rule is positive. The standing takedown should go out. Prolonged attempts to to, uh, stabilize you for extrication. If you're awake and alert, get out of the car by yourself. That's the best way. And this idea that forceful inline stabilization for intubation is necessary to protect a cervical spine is silly. Our job as emergentologists is to de-emphasize this dogmatic focus on immobilization for all. We have smart pre-hospital providers who are yearning to use their brains. We don't need to have this dogmatic, ritualized backboard and collar for all. Let's focus our efforts on immediate resuscitation, minimize the energy deposition, minimize movement and treatment delays, and treat our patients well. Very rarely is a time in medicine when we can do something that makes our patients happier, that costs less money, uh, and that increases our throughput uh, without uh, incurring risk. And I think it's time now to move away from this board and collared. And so I invite you all on board, and I hope that together we can make some change. Thank you. So in review, it makes no sense to strap a patient down and provide more fulcrums for more potential injury. Backboards and collars are not without risk, and they can cause decubitus ulcers, which carry morbidity and mortality in spinal cord-injured patients. They increase ICP, which is bad for patients who have concomitant head injury. And in penetrating injuries, they've been shown to actually increase mortality. A backboard is an extrication device and a hard surface for CPR, but it's never been proven to provide spinal protection. We'll have all the details of the studies backing this in the written summary in the blog post. So as Dr. Bosman says, let's all be part of this paradigm shift towards a much more selective use of boards and collars. We'll have more highlights from North York General's Emergency Medicine Update Conference with Dr. Stuart Swadron and Dr. Amal Matu. And if you haven't had a chance, don't forget to download the first ever EM Cases ebook, EM Cases Digest Volume 1, MSK and Trauma, from the emergencymedicinecases.com website. It represents more than a year's work of a team of six people to bring you an interactive, fun way of learning. So I hope you can check it out. And the cool thing is that it's 100% free. Hopefully by the time you've heard this podcast, the ebook will be available as an iBook in the iTunes store for free as well. So until next time, take it easy. Take it easy.